we here in Atlanta uh, celebrated, of course. <laughs> Hi, Knox. <laughs> You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. On today's episode, I talk with Diana Groover about depression, doubt, and figures throughout Christian history who encountered them. But first, Holly, how are you this week? I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I know since our last intro recording, uh, we had uh, your birthday, which we, mm. we mentioned a little bit on last intro. And and here we got to celebrate uh, my son's birthday, which which was fun. So uh, lots of lots of fun birthday type things and, and all of that. But uh, anything mm-hmm. else exciting happening in the last week with the, the Octandlers? Um, no, I mean, we're getting ready for the, you know, we're in the last stretch of the semester. We got about a month left for the kiddos in school. I know um, both my kiddos, like their teachers have all these fun activities planned for the last month, which has been so fun to see. And I don't know, we're just, yeah, kind of inching towards the finish line. I did get to talk last week. I know when this episode comes out, it'll be, you know, a week later, but but I did get to to chat with ACPE last week mm, and yeah. talk with them about the soul of the helper and um, a bunch about my research on the intersection of spirituality and mental health. And it was fun to actually like see Russell, um, yeah. who, you know, we had on the previous week's episode and it yeah. actually like, you know, see him while I'm talking with him rather than it just being through like audio recording. So, yeah. Yeah. so that was fun. And I'm just getting ready for, I've got a couple of trips coming up that I'm getting ready for that, you know, one is with my grant team. We're going to be gathering in California to work on some research stuff. And and the other one, I'm going to be um, speaking at the Look Up Conference with the Lutheran Foundation. um, And that's up in uh, Indiana, excuse me. And so (laughs) I'm looking forward to that too. So just there's some stuff on the horizon, but I am also very excited. We are in the last month. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, one more thing. One more fun yeah. thing. Since you mentioned that it was my birthday uh, this last weekend, mm-hmm. one fun thing that we got to do was I went out and got a bike, which I'm really excited about to get to yeah. go out riding with the kids and Corey. So yeah. So yeah, we'll just hope and pray I don't break any more bones. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but that was good too. So I guess there there has been a few things going on in the Oxford yeah. home. So that's awesome. Yeah. What about y'all? Anything else other than the big fun birthday party? That's uh, that's the the main thing I think. I know last last intro we talked about Easter and stuff like that, and so yeah, you know, uh, that was last weekend or I guess two weekends ago, and then last weekend was birthday party and stuff like that, and so you know, uh, kind of a nonstop thing. I will say I in the 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 small group that that Brooke and I are in. 
Uh, uh-huh. do, you know, kind of check-ins and whatnot via it's all you know on Zoom or whatever. And it was last mm-hmm. night as we're recording this intro, and I uh, uh, used the lots of tabs open metaphor, and oh everybody gosh. liked it so much that multiple other people ended up using it in their check-ins. So oh, I'm that's spreading. Awesome. I'm you know evangelizing the the metaphor <laughs> of the tabs. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that so much. No, I'm definitely sensing that like all over. I just, I had met, I had a meeting earlier today and my colleagues, I think we're, we're all kind of feeling that open tabs analogy, Yeah, but we are, we're close. We're almost to that for us, (laughs) the finish line of the end of the semester. I know that that's not everybody's experience, but yeah, summer is getting closer. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So well, another fun thing, um, I saw that there's a there's a Twitter account of Mr. Rogers quotes. <gasps> yes. That this past week uh, promoted mm. the soul of the helper and did because mm-hmm. you quote and I know what Mr. Rogers we've talked about before is a, a big figure for you in kind of your personal mm-hmm. history and, and shaping and things like that. And so that was super cool. Yeah. I bring that up because my segue was going to be are there some uh, you know, historical figures, historical being a, you know, essentially any time before right now uh, uh-huh. that you uh, really look up to and, and look to and, and things like that. And um, and I know that's one of them. So I answered it for you, I guess. I love it. Are I was there, gonna are say, there just yeah. use that. No, just use yeah. that. I think that's great. And I love it because actually yesterday, just yesterday was Mr. Rogers Sunday at our church where we like honor and recognize the graduates and the work that they're about to go off and do. And then hmm. we spend about um, 20 or 30 minutes listening to uh, a bit of a Mr. Rogers documentary. And so that's what I got to do yesterday, actually, was yeah. get to listen to Mr. Rogers talk. And so you bringing up Mr. Rogers is perfect for this yeah. week. So And then you watch I a little Daniel Tiger. That. Well, <laughs> which is no, not so much. The- Rogers yeah, verse. The same, yeah. yeah. I do think I was able to convince my kiddos that we might go back to doing, like for those who've read The Soul of the Helper, I talk about Mr. Rogers' nights. I do think we may be going back to those soon. So mm, I'm know. really excited about that. But yeah. And yeah. And I'm was so honored by it was Rick Lee James who runs that account, who shared it. Um, he's reading the book right now and I'll get to talk with him soon about it. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. That'll be fun. Yeah, but that's awesome. Yeah. What about yeah. you? Who's a historical influential person for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that there's like one that I I that holds maybe such a such a big place as mm-hmm. maybe Mr. Rogers does for you. Hmm. Well, I'll say I'll say this that's kind of adjacent to the question, but not uh-huh. really, but I just think yeah. it's interesting, is that I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but uh, my great great I don't I don't remember the exact amount of greats, um, but but one of my, you know, great great grandfathers, however many greats, um, was mm-hmm. the uh, the first Irish ambassador to the United States. Um and his oh, name wow. was Robert Brennan, which is where <gasps> oh, like my name directly comes from. Yeah. Um he was part of like uh, a an, an uprising in Ireland and stuff like that. Um and so I I've been looking wow. into that more recently in terms of my my dad had a an old copy. He has some memoirs and stuff that are super rare to find. They're a couple mm. hundred bucks when I went to try and find one online. Oh my, my dad gosh. was like I have a copy, I'll lend it to you. And so I don't know, I've uh-huh. been looking into that more, just I, that I think I find that so interesting. Um, and I've always known that fact, of, you know, where my name 
comes from and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I've never really like dug into that. And I don't know why just the past, you know, month or so I've, I've been really interested and curious and kind of tracking some of that down and, and grabbing, like I said, the copy of, of his book and uh, I haven't gotten around to reading it quite yet. But I don't know. That's so that's a historical figure who I don't I don't honestly know a ton about. But that's, you know, recently I've been kind of trying to dig in and learn a little more. And there's like a memorial to him in his hometown in Ireland and stuff. So. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so that's amazing. That's a, well, and you carry snippet. his name, like that's pretty right. That's yeah, a that's I mean, literally my first yeah. and middle name, which then obviously yeah. I passed on the my middle name to to Brennan. So, um, yeah, so, I love that. I think yeah. that's really neat. Well, you can give us updates about what you learn about your great great great, however many mm-hmm. greats grandfather yeah. i think yeah. that's really cool yeah that's so, awesome yeah the segue there is uh that that this week um this interview right i talked and i said i in the intro because you weren't last minute you you had a i think a doctor's right. thing right so yeah. um which is mm-hmm. fine but so i chatted with diana groover about her book her back back in 2020 her book companions in the darkness seven saints who struggled with depression and doubt and so mm. she takes these kind of historical christian figures that loom large right uh, charles spurgeon mother Teresa, martin luther king jr right mm-hmm. and and kind of dives into their experiences with depression and doubt and things like that as a way of uh, kind of illuminating for us the, the the normalization of some of that and then um kind of you know how they navigated that with with their faith and and found hope and stuff like that and so you know uh, just that that kind of tie in there of of historical figures that we listen or look to mm-hmm. well we will go ahead and get into it that way you can listen to it and our listeners can listen to it so mm-hmm. enjoy our interview with diana gruber all right enjoy y'all All right, today I'm so excited to be joined by Diana Groover. She writes about discipleship and spiritual formation in the everyday. She previously worked as a writer and an editor for Culture and Youth Studies and lives in Pennsylvania with her husband and daughter. She's the author of Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt, which we're going to talk about today. Diana, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's so good to be with you, Robert. Yeah, yeah, I know this has been one we've been trying to schedule for a while, um, and so excited to to get you on. Is there anything else that our audience should know about you other than that that bio I read right there? Well, uh, since that bio was written, we have a, another member of our family, so we mm, also yeah. have a, a seven month old in our yeah, house we, now. Yeah, we were just talking about that, and it didn't even occur to me to uh, switch that in the bio. Oh, it's all I good. didn't even think about it. So it's um, all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Thank um, you. That's, I know that's super exciting. Well, I know uh, this book is so good and I actually got the chance. Uh, so you were on uh, our friend Jonathan Puddle. You were on his oh, podcast yeah. maybe a year ago uh, or so. And he does these like B-sides that are like these bonus episodes where someone else comes on and kind of talks about the episode. And I was the B-side to talk oh, nice. about the, the episode that you were on of his show. So uh, loved hearing uh, that interview with you and then obviously getting to read the book for myself. And then now I'm excited to to have you on and share with our audience and get to get to talk with you myself. So I can kind of dig in. I guess that my first question, you know, kind of obviously all, all the time is why write this book, right? I mean, right, researching and then writing a book about kind of these seven major figures who struggled with things like depression and doubt. Why Why go that route? Why is that kind of worth all your time and energy that takes to, to put a book together? 
It started off very personally. Um, so as I share in the book, I have a history of depression myself, and I didn't know the stories in this book when I first walked through that. And and so it wasn't until I was in seminary and I started noticing in some of my church history classes, these stories of people from the past who struggled mm. with depression. They wouldn't have called it that, um, yeah. but it very much the same cluster of symptoms of what we call clinical depression today. And so it piqued my interest, of course. And then right. I, I couldn't help think, what would my experience have been like if I had known those stories from the beginning? Um, not that it would have kept me from experiencing depression, but would it have taken away a little bit of the guilt that came with it? Hmm. Um, and so that kind of sent me off on this process of researching some of these people and then wanting to share their stories with others uh, because you know, it's it's two, for two reasons. One, I don't know of a better way to unravel stigma than through the telling of stories. Hmm. And I know that's something that you and your audience care deeply about, um, you know, unraveling the stigma that comes with mental illness. And I think we can do that through the telling of stories. What is that like? Yeah. What is that like for me? Um, yeah. But then it's not just random stories, right? These are people that are heroes that we respect or are still talking about their lives. And so I think that has a very unique uh, attacking point to that stigma because no one's going to look at these folks and say, you know, you weren't trying hard enough. You weren't strong enough. You didn't love Jesus enough. Yeah. And so I think their stories have a unique role to play in that and and they need to be shared and they haven't thus far. So, so yeah. here we are. <laughs> Yeah, I I love that on on like multiple levels, right? One is just the 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 idea of normalizing some things, right? So maybe people feel less alone or less isolated. Like this thing, you know, this is the I'm the only one going through this thing. But then I right. do love what you talked about in terms of like who these people were in a sense of, you know, I think oftentimes we can feel a little bit like, okay, if I'm uh, wrestling with depression or doubt or ho however you would phrase it, right? The the dark night of the soul or, you know, however you would kind of label that. There's a sense that comes with that of that that it's a failing of faith. I mean, sometimes that's, that's said explicitly, which I, mm -hmm. I would say that obviously this show disagrees with. Um, but even even if it's not kind of explicitly stated, there's there does, I think, oftentimes there's this sense of like, well, I have to God can't use me if this is if this is what I'm experiencing, right. right? Because so much of the stories that we see celebrated are like just the victory stories or whatever, right? Like there tends to be this kind of you know that kind of thing. And so uh, I I love that in this book where you say like, look, there's there's all these people who you've heard of and who are who have done these like great things. We would say they are people who have massively impacted faith communities and things, and they they had this too right and so it doesn't that's those aren't that's not a disqualifying experience right yeah because it's not just you know it's not just their stories telling us it's not alone we're not alone but you're right it's i i, I become more and more convinced that the types of stories that we tell matter very deeply um and we'll just let's just shrink it down to the christian community you know the types of stories that we choose to tell teach us where to expect God to work, what it looks like when he works in our lives, what isn't isn't okay to struggle with, what isn't isn't okay to pray about. And so with something like mental health, we need stories like this from the past and also from the present, but you know we need these stories to help 
train our vision to expect God to show up in something like depression? Um, you know, what does it look like for him to be at work in our lives when we're stuck in the in the dark? Um, yeah. And so, and I think there's something from looking at at stories from the past where, you know, when we're locked in the present, there are things that we can't see. We can't see the end of the story yet. And so we can't see how things will play out. But when we can look back on the life of someone else, there are things that we can see that they couldn't even see um, as far as yeah. how God used them or was working in them or how he has used their story and even their pain to really impact um, other people in, in a, a hopeful way or an encouraging way. And so, yeah, I think especially because they're from the past, they have a unique thing to offer us in that way as well. Yeah. So why these seven people, right? And, and uh, you, you know, we can list them or people can go look at, look at the, the book details. But why these seven? Were, are these the only seven that you could find? Or these were just ones that you kind of that stuck out to you, right? Like, how did you sort through going through church history and saying, okay, well, who, who had any of these types of things? Well, some of it was a little tricky because um, no one has, at least that I could find, has treated this systematically before. And so there are some of mm -hmm. these stories that have kind of been actually overlooked or shrugged aside. Um, I'll never forget that I was reading a, a biography of Charles Spurgeon and the author explicitly said, well, he struggled with depression, but those are just his feet of clay. We'll have to excuse him for it because of all the other great stuff that he did. Oh, gosh. And I know, right? And so, you know, for some of these folks, it's just been something that's kind of fallen into the shadows a little bit. And and so if, you, if you're trying to find, you're, you're sorting through what has been preserved, and then finding those stories, sometimes it can be a little tricky. So there are other people that I stumbled upon that I think we could say struggled with depression, but there just wasn't enough information, particularly in their yeah. own words, to feel like you could write a whole chapter about. And mm. I was pretty emphatic. I wanted to only use people that there was enough evidence from you know their own self-reporting or those who are very close to them that I wasn't going to have to take a lot of time to make some kind of a case that they struggled mm. with something very akin to depression. I wanted it to be fairly self-evident. Um, so that narrowed out a lot of people uh, just because that was not something that I felt like was going to be helpful because we have to yeah. be responsible historically, right? You know, we're working with a 21st century diagnosis and diagnostic criteria and, you know, returning yeah. it to 500 years ago. Right. Um, so, so that was that was a big thing for me. And then trying to just make sure that they were varied from time period, um, you know, their their background, what they did, trying to just create a, a more varied picture across time and experiences and and that kind of thing, at least to the best of my ability. Yeah, yeah. What what stuck out to me right there, right? You're you're talking about okay, I read these biographies or whatever, right? And for maybe a lot of people, they say, okay, well, yeah, he had some of this stuff, but we're not going to worry about that, right? As if it's <laughs> incidental or if it's a separate thing, like, oh, well, the good, the the good things, quote unquote, the the big things that that they did overshadow that, right? And I I think what what's interesting is that I would probably argue, and I don't know all of their like super into, obviously, I don't know them or you know I don't know any of them, um, personally, but. 
I think for so many of us, the the harder parts, the deeper like pain parts is an integral part of the story of what we're doing, right? Like I know the basis of this show and the work that I do like wouldn't exist had I not had the harder parts, right? Like, and I know for, for a lot of us, that's true. Even in your story, you say, okay, I wrote this book partially because the things that jumped out at me based on, okay, I recognize that from my own story, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's so interesting that maybe that gets glossed over oftentimes. It's like, well, there also was this stuff, but that matters less because of the the other, the, you know, quote unquote, good things that we want to celebrate when in actuality, maybe those are, those are two sides of the same coin, like that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have the level of empathy or compassion or whatever, like they wouldn't have all that without having gone through some of those harder times. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think sometimes this gets that, that idea gets turned in a way that tries to um, return to those victory stories, right? Well, look Mm -hmm, at all this great mm -hmm. thing that happened because of our pain. And we need to acknowledge that pain is pain. There's no getting around that. Um, But you're right. It shapes us. It shapes us. And I think for, for all the people um, whose stories that I share in this book, it, it shapes them in ways that influence the way that they were able to love other people or influence other people or the way that their story can impact us today. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine Charles Spurgeon being such a source of empathy and and compassion and comfort to his parishioners if he did not suffer um, both from a mental health standpoint and a physical health standpoint as much as he did, right? That shaped yeah. him in a way that made him um, much better able to minister to the people under his care. Yeah, yeah. So of these seven folks, right, we have uh, Martin Luther, Hannah Allen, David Brainerd. Did I say that right? You did. David Brainerd, William Cooper, Charles Spurgeon, Mother Teresa, and Martin Luther King Jr. Of those seven, uh, was there one that kind of jumped out to you uh, that resonated most deeply, right? Because obviously I'm not going to say, oh, well, share, you know, get, walk us through all seven. But is there one that that really resonated deeply with you that you want to share a little bit with with us? Yeah, so I think uh, William Cooper is the one that stood out to me. In fact, I had a friend, I was trying to wrap up my research and was just loving reading this book of all of his letters. And my one friend said, Diana, you just have to let William Cooper be. He's done. You have enough. You need to stop. Um, (laughs) You need to just write the chapter already. And it's interesting because I think that his story is probably the saddest one in the book. First of all, because his depression was chronic. It was not something that that he ever finally got to the place where he felt like he was in a, a better place from. Um, and multiple times during his life attempted to take his own life. And mm. um, But in addition to that, there was a spiritual element that came with his depression that was that was very dark and so he died believing that god had declared to him that in a dream he believed that he was outside of grace and could never be saved Mm. and so not only the depression piece and um you know the suicide piece but then this just complete desolation in in believing that he was outside of the mercy of god and in spite of that I just felt him to be someone that I was really, really drawn to, Um, you know, in spite of all of, of that, that darkness and sadness and despair, he has these lovely little stories about spending time with his pets and going for walks. And he 
wrote little poems to his friends, thanking them for giving him lobsters. And, you know, there was just such a warmth, <laughs> a warmth to him uh, that came through his, his letters and his writings um, that really drew me. I think in addition to that, the fact that he was a writer, I really related to. Yeah. He, he said that poetry was his best remedy in the face of depression. And there was something in in pouring himself into that creative outlet and and the way I think that it it grounded him in in the very tangible earthiness of his life. You know, a lot of his his walks in the countryside show up in his poetry. And so I, I have to imagine that there was something in that too that that was helpful to keep him rooted. And so I, I relate to that, you know, processing yeah. those experiences, processing those that pain and, and finding a way forward through the process of writing and crafting words is something I really identify with. Yeah. Were there any of them that maybe was uh, the most surprising to you as you started digging in and you thought like, man, I, I never knew any of this. I hadn't learned this about, about this person and it really was surprising? Mother Teresa um, was very surprising, and I think she's surprising to a lot of people because not many people know about her struggle. I think she's the the one that's the hardest to say, oh, it was definitely clinical depression, just mm-hmm. because we don't have a lot of information. Um, yeah. But I think her spiritual experience is so akin to what I and many others have have experienced in the midst of depression that it felt worthy of including here. But to think that this person who was so active in serving others and just exuded love and joy and peace, you know, those fruits of the spirit, right? To, to, yeah. to, to realize that internally, I mean, she described it as feeling like an ice block. My soul is like an ice block, she would mm. say. Yeah. And she just felt like God's presence was completely gone. Um, that's shocking. And, and it's, it's pretty shocking to read in her own words what that felt like. Um, yeah. And also Martin Luther King Jr. was surprising to me because I had never heard that before. Yeah. And what tipped me off is there's a great documentary called King in the Wilderness that focuses really on the last uh, like year and a half of his life. And, um, you know, the, these firsthand testimonies from some of his friends and, and coworkers about this depression that was hidden kind of behind the scenes for a lot of reasons, right? He, he didn't have the freedom to share about that during his lifetime. Yeah. And so there's not as much in his own words to, to describe what that felt like for him. And so to try to piece some of it together, hearing these other firsthand testimonies of those close to him was really surprising and and very humanizing. You know, it shouldn't yeah. it shouldn't be a surprise that someone in his position would be battered by all of these these forces outside of his mm-hmm. control and you know by the time he died he had gone from being a, a hero in some circles to just one of the most hated men in America. Yeah. And even his friends were turning against him and so it should not come as a shock I think that that had an effect on him. Yeah. But to to read about that was was a surprise. Yeah, and I know right there you when you were talking about Mother Teresa, you talked about, you know, maybe that's the one that is least likely uh, to retroactively say, okay, this kind of fits within a diagnostic criteria for depression. And I, what I think is interesting is I don't know how much that matters per se in terms of, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, can we apply diagnostic things backwards or whatever? And I think 
I don't know how much it matters per se, uh, because the the you know diagnostic criteria are constellations of symptoms that people have lumped together and whatnot. We could get into a whole DSM thing, but what what <laughs> matters is like the the human element there of experiencing exactly. the the sensation of being isolated or alone, or of like this you know discouragement or the these massive doubts, and then the oftentimes maybe in faith circles maybe the like secondary emotions of if I feel discouraged then I feel shame on top of that because I I should feel fired up or whatever like quote unquote right. shit right like all that type of kind of spiraling of those secondary emotions and stuff right I think that all is is what we're saying okay that's like that's a human experience and that's that's actually where God can meet meet you you know yeah. and it doesn't have to be just mountaintop stuff it can you know oftentimes it is in the harder spots and that that's part of it that's not a, a detraction from it absolutely yeah. And, you know, I, I wish I could sit down with Mother Teresa and have a conversation about this because I have mixed feelings, which we can go into if you want. But, sure. uh, you know, she she said towards the end of this process to one of her spiritual directors, I have come to love the darkness. Hmm. And I think some of that came from just her own theological perspective of the purpose of that experience and what she felt like God was doing through it. And I'm more, like I said, I'm a little conflicted because should we say, oh, yeah, I love this pain. I love being depressed. This is great. Uh, I don't know. But I think that impulse of saying there is something here, this is not wasted, right? There is something here that God can enter into. There is something here that God can use. This is a place that God can, can keep company with me and I can you know, experience parts of his, his character in ways that I couldn't on those mountaintop moments. And so would I go as far as saying, especially in the midst of a season like that, you know, I love the darkness, (laughs) probably not, but I think she has really um, shaped my thinking about that and, and offers a good word as far as exactly what you're expressing, right? God doesn't just work on those mountaintops. He's here in in the depths as well. And we need to train our vision to be able to see him there and and understand what that might look like. Yeah, that's even as you were talking before, I was thinking, you know, as as Mother Teresa is describing, you know, kind of the the idea of I I don't I don't feel the God's presence, right? Mm. And I think I was wondering, which I think lines up with what you just talked about, I was wondering what what does that mean? Like how much do we maybe conflate feeling God's presence with a particular sensation, which, you know, for a lot of us nowadays, it's like, okay, well, when I go to, uh, uh, you know, the worship song hits at exactly the right time and the the lights and the mooding or the, the mood and the lighting and stuff, right? Like there, we equate like uh, certain sensations with like, okay, I feel God's presence. But for most of us, if we, if we ascribe to like, God being present all the time, not like God only shows up when you're singing this song, right? Like mm-hmm. then I think that does, if we stepped back, we would have to say, okay, well, then what does it look like to recognize that or to experience, you know, the the presence of God when we don't have that feeling, right? And I, I wonder yeah. if that's some of what she was talking about. And I don't know, obviously, but I think, you know, to your point, the idea that she ended up saying, okay, I love the darkness. I, I wonder if some of that was an adjustment of actually God is here 
it just I was equating it with a particular sensation or whatever, you know. Yeah. And I don't know for her, but I think for a lot of us, you know, modern modern times, that that shift would be it's interesting at least to point out and say, okay, maybe we should, you know, think critically about this. Absolutely. Yeah. I And so with each of the chapters, I pull out kind of a main theme of advice that they might offer to us today. And the advice I pulled out from her life was follow Jesus and not your feelings. And because, you, I mean, I think you've really touched on something important. And and this is kind of the world that I, I live in. So it's it's become very important to me. Our feelings are great. I know that you won't argue with me on that point, right? Our emotions <laughs> yeah. are valuable. They're they're given to us by God. They can do a, us a lot of good. They're not inherently evil, but they are not the ultimate litmus test of reality. Hmm. And and so we can pay attention to them. And so you know, in the in the situation that you're that you're describing, that. Everyone that I have ever talked to who suffers from depression has had that sense of spiritual isolation and mm. and a, a loss of God's presence in, yeah. in the midst of depression. And so we can sit with that emotion and we can grieve it, right? It is okay for us to say, this is what I feel and this really hurts. But just because we feel like God isn't there doesn't mean that he isn't. Mm. And so I think that that there's this um, we need to you know sit with that that tension of mourning that we've lost the sense of something that we had before, yeah. While also finding ways to keep ourselves tethered to truth or hope, you know, whatever that looks like for us, whenever those feelings aren't there in the, the way that they have been in the past. Because God yeah. is there, right? That is just a part of who he is. He doesn't abandon us when things get difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's not this fickle person who is, you know, well, I like you today. I don't like you tomorrow, right? He is, he is steady and sure and steadfast in his love for us as his children. And so finding ways to anchor ourselves in that reality while facing the pain of the loss of these emotions or, or senses, yeah. whatever, whatever that feels like for us of his presence, I think is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I'm glad you circle back or built in the the parts about feelings being valuable and all that. Right. Because I think it's easy to hear, you know, follow Jesus, not your feelings. And that, that type of language can be used in a, you know, faith over feelings type yes. of way, which, yes. you know, I get a little uneasy with. Um, I do too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, across these seven stories, and even as you're hearing other people's stories and, and things like that, were there, uh, you've touched on some of them, but any any common themes or threads that really jumped out at you that by the end of it, you said, okay, here's what seems to be popping up again and again and again, and that seems really important. Well, since we've just been talking about it, I'll mention it, the spiritual dynamic in everyone's life, mm. and the fact that it is so consistent again, especially in the people, in these particular people's lives, I think is very notable and it's very reassuring, right? In exactly the context that we're talking about, because I feel yeah. this way does not mean that God is not here. It does not mean that he can't use me. It doesn't mean that he isn't already using me. Um, so that thread I think was, was really important. I think it's interesting to think about um, what makes people resilient 
And I, I thought about this more specifically in relation to Dr. King, but if I think about the patterns um, in that, that reappear in, in multiple of these stories, the pattern of humor, for example, is kind of a surprising mm. one. Um, but there are multiple of these, these folks, um, uh, Martin Luther, uh, Cooper, Spurgeon, King, all of them had this great sense of humor. And so it's kind of interesting to think about, okay, what helped them to endure, what helped them to cope and to see just the, the resilience that comes through this, this sense of humor, which sometimes was dark, but gave them the ability to, to laugh in the face of, of the darkness and, and find a way through in that way. So yeah. that was, that was really interesting to see. I was not expecting to have folks that many folks with a, a great yeah. sense of humor in a book about depression. Yeah. Um, and then also to look at all of these people and see the, the friends and the family members who were a part of their lives. I couldn't tell any of these stories um, without mentioning the, and sometimes going into a lot of detail about other people who walked with them through their experience of depression. Yeah. And so to think about, um, you know, either as one who does suffer from it, who are those people in my life who are there in either consistently or in different seasons that that help me in various ways and encourage me or walk with me, sit with me, listen to me. But then also for those of us who love people who are depressed, what can I learn from these other examples of the caregivers of these these people in the ways that they creatively and consistently and courageously showed up to continue to love them well in the yeah. midst of a, a deep struggle. And so, so that was a really beautiful thing to notice as well that I think I undersold how much these other, you know, secondary stories hmm. would be. I, I shouldn't be surprised by that, but I, I was. Yeah. So I want to circle back to that. Uh, it, in a second, because I know at the end you write about kind of the, the community aspect, but I did want to ask because I remember this phrase from your interview on with, with Jonathan Puddle and it's, it's the, you know, the kind of the subtitle of the, the, a chunk at the end where you write this phrase, the water is deep, but the bottom is good. Mm. Can you tell me about that phrase? Because it's such a powerful phrase. I feel like, can you, can you tell me about that a little? Yeah. So it's, it's a a phrase from Charles Spurgeon who pulled it from Pilgrim's Progress. So follow that chain back in time. <laughs> yeah. um, he he mentioned Pilgrim's Progress a lot, and there's this episode where um, Christian is crossing this river with one of his companions, and he's scared. And his friend who has gone into the water before him says, in Charles Spurgeon's words, you know, don't be afraid The the water is deep, but the bottom is good. It's sure there's footing here, you know, so come with me into the water. And, and Spurgeon related it to Jesus and also the, the people who walk with us, right. Who, who go into the water before us and can say the water is deep, right? This is not something to laugh at. This is serious, yeah. Yeah. but there, there is a bottom. There is a sure place to find footing. 
Yeah. And and so I kept thinking after I had read it when I was doing my research on Spurgeon, I kept thinking about it in relation to these these stories, because I think that's the message that they offer to us. You know, the the water is deep. This is what depression is like. It is painful. It is scary. There's no getting around that. But there is a a solid ground that we can trust will be there to hold us up and we will find a way through. And, and there's something in their stories that speak that word to us because they've walked through that mm. water themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So at the end, this is what I said I was going to circle back to. At the end, you write these these 10 ideas or suggestions for when one you love is in the dark. And I think they're so good. They're so practical. Uh, I know we can't go in-depth in all 10, but if you had to pick a couple that, or maybe if you can do all 10 really quickly, I don't know how, how concise you are, um, but are there a couple that you would highlight for folks listening who say, yeah, I do know a lot of people, right? I'm, I'm a, a faith leader or a mental health professional or, or a friend, a family member of someone who does like, what do I do? How do I help people who seem like they're, they're in these hard places? Which of, are there a couple of those that you would like really recommend? Yeah. And I'll just, I'll cluster them together. I guess the first yeah. one would be to help them get treatment, right? There's a lot that mm. we can do in encouraging each other, sometimes removing barriers to helping people get treatment. It can be really overwhelming, for example, to try to find a counselor. (laughs) And so if there is a way that you can help your friend or a parishioner or what have you navigate that to help get them connected to the treatment they need, that can be of great value. Sometimes it's as practical as driving somebody to a doctor's appointment or offering to watch their children, right? Whatever Mm -hmm. you can do to help get them to the place where they're, they're getting treatment. Um, The second would be don't try to do it alone, right? We can't walk through depression alone, but we can't care for people who are walking through depression alone either. Mm. And so just like we need to surround them with, um, you know, the, the practical support that they need, the spiritual support that they need, um, all of those things, we need that ourselves. And so, especially if it's somebody that's in your own house, uh, you, maybe you need to get a counselor as well, you know, to, to be taking care of yourself and keeping yourself in a good mental yeah. health place because it can be hard. Yeah. And so, you know, as you're helping them bolster their support ne- network, bolster yours as well. And then the third thing would be to just be patient. <laughs> mm. um, it takes a long time. And and sometimes depending on the person and, and, you know, their own set of circumstances and biology and what have you, it might be something that's recurrent. And so celebrating the little victories when they come um, you know, taking, celebrating those baby steps when they happen and just trying to be patient and discerning as you're walking through this marathon of recovery. You know, I think one of the the beautiful things in, in my own life, but I'm thinking specifically again of William Cooper is that mm. people kept showing up. None of them tried yeah. to be a superhuman and do it all themselves. Um, he had this cluster of people that, you know, passed in and out of his life in different seasons, but they kept showing up. And so whatever that looks like, you know, those little steps, those little moments, those little actions, take those little baby steps and, um, yeah, just be consistent, keep, keep being there. And that I think will speak more volumes than trying to find this one monumental 
thing because yeah. there is no one monumental thing that will make it all better. Yeah. But the the consistency of your presence and your care is what makes the difference. Yeah. Gosh, that's so good. So one thing that we love asking folks when they come on is about the, the their hope for the work that they do. So in all your writing, and obviously uh, most notably right now, we're talking about this book, but I know you do lots of other stuff as well. What, what would your hope be? I know this book has been out for a year and a half. And so yeah. as that's continued to launch and continued to, you know, you're, you're seeing people talk about it and, and everything like that. What What's your hope for it? I think my big hope for this book is that people find the courage to share their own stories. Um, I close the book with this quote from Mother Teresa. She says, if I ever become a saint, I'll be one of darkness. And that's almost what the book was called, actually, um, Hmm. was Saints of Darkness. The publisher, I think, had a better idea. But, um, you know, so these people were shaped by the dark and we are shaped by the dark. And there's something that that our stories can offer to each other in the present day in the same way that these stories do from the past. And so trying to, and it's been really encouraging and beautiful to, to receive notes and have people face-to-face just recently been able to share more in person with people about it, but to have people say, you know, this is me. I, I saw myself in these pages and you put yeah. words to things that I, I didn't know how to put words to before. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm encouraged or I have the courage to share my story or I have the courage to take that step that I need to, to get well or get treatment. That makes all of this worth it. And, and so that is my big hope for the book, you know. The people yeah. know that they aren't alone and have the courage to take the steps they need to be well and the courage to share their story as well. Yeah. And and in the the bigger picture, kind of, you know, pulling out from that as far as where this book fits into, you know, the bigger picture, I really believe that the the key question in our our discipleship and our spiritual formation is what does it look like to follow Jesus faithfully here? In every circumstance, in every season, with our own unique life experience and and gifting and and all of those factors, what does it look like to follow Jesus faithfully here? And and I think we can have we have that conversation a lot more about the positive aspects of our life. Hmm. But it's one I think that is worth asking in those painful seasons of our life as well. If it applies to all of our life. If following Jesus applies to all of our life, then it applies to those things too. And so thinking through, yeah. okay, you know, the the Christian life isn't always those moments of victory. And sometimes it is an experience of deep pain um, yeah. or doubt. And so in the midst of those things too, what does it look like to follow Jesus faithfully? And I hope that that's something that people think about. And I know even just for myself, reading these stories from history has has helped shape my understanding of what that looks like um, in a way that I feel like I can more easily identify what some of those little steps of faithfulness are in my own life today. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you want to connect with Diana, you can do that at dianagroover.com on facebook.com slash dianagrooverwriter or on Twitter at dianagroover. You can buy this book, Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt, wherever you get books. We'll have all that, all those links in the show notes. 
Holly's not here, but you can connect with her at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert vorecom or on any social media at Robert Vohr. Diana, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with us. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, it's been so good to be with you, Robert. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I've, I've loved this conversation. Yeah, I just, I think the thing that I, I come back to a lot with this topic and with these stories is just the steady faithfulness of God to keep company with us in the darkness. I've in part because of this process, you know, I've come to read Psalms like Psalm 139 a lot differently Hmm. where he talks about, you know, when I go up to the the heights, you were there, those moments of victory, those mountaintop experiences, Lord, you're there. But when I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Hmm. And, and he, he finishes that, that thought, that, that part of the Psalm by saying, even the darkness is not dark to you, Lord. Yeah. And so thinking about regardless of, of what our spiritual journey or, uh, you know, our, our life journey looks like those high moments and those low moments, God keeps company with us there. He is faithful to do that. And I think that is one of those really beautiful anchoring points of hope that, that keep us steady, regardless of what that journey looks like. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.